from McGuire Woods, welcome to Yield Maintenance, a debt finance podcast for market participants outside the traditional bank lending space. Whether you're a direct lender, an alternative lender, in fintech, or a borrower, we invite you to come inside the conversation with the specialists and professionals of the debt finance industry. All right. This is Brian Coughlin. I am the host of the Yield Maintenance Podcast, a conversation about debt and all sorts of interesting forms. And I'm pleased to welcome for our very first episode, Clayton Stahlbomber, a partner in the McGuire Wood Chicago office in our debt finance practice and an expert in the Main Street Lending Program, which is the next round of debt-focused stimulus that we see coming down the pipe from the Fed. Clayton, glad to have you join us today on what is our very first episode. So thank you. And pleased to have your insight on the Main Street Lending Program, which looks like a pretty interesting program at this point. Thanks, Brian. Happy to do this and happy to you know, talk a little bit about the program. And, you know, it, it's just starting to get opened up. And I think we're about to see what kind of uptake it gets. Yeah, for I think everyone's looking interested to see what it's actually going to look like once it goes live. So we've been hearing about the Main Street Lending, Lending Program pretty frequently over the last month and a half or so. And it seems that there have been a number of different iterations and guidance and then supplementary guidance and then supplementary guidance again, including some further updates over this, you know, the last few days. Can you provide kind of a quick and easy summary of the overall program at this point in time? Sure. So the Main Street Lending Program is a program designed to support the extension of credit to businesses that were in sound financial condition before the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. It is a program that comes out of that pandemic, is mentioned in passing in the CARES Act, and gets some of its funding through Treasury's investment out of the CARES Act, but it is a Federal Reserve Program governed by the Federal Reserve Act and the regulations that come out of that act. Through this program, eligible lenders will make eligible loans to eligible borrowers, and the Fed, acting through a special purpose vehicle that it sets up, will purchase participations in those eligible loans to the tune of 95% of those loans. It means that the Fed is essentially taking 95% of the credit risk off of the bank's books but unlike some other programs, this is a program that is going to depend upon the efforts of the banks involved. Banks are not going to be acting as pass-throughs for this program. They are expected to do their own underwriting for this program. They're expected to use their own documentation for this program. And so right now, this program consists of three separate but related facilities. Last week, there were two draft sheets published for nonprofit facilities that might be added to this program. But right now, we have three main facilities, the new loan facility, the priority loan facility, and the expanded loan facility. Now, each of those programs provide for five-year term loans to be made to borrowers that have a amortization such that principal is deferred for two years, interest is deferred for one year. And over the course of the remaining three years, there is minimal amortization the first two years. 15% of the principal gets amortized at the end of years three and four. 
and the rest gets paid at maturity at the end of year five. The differences between the programs are, are really around the size of the loans and how they relate to what a borrower's other debt might be. The new loan facility is probably the most straightforward. Loans under that facility can range from $250,000 all the way up to $35 million, and that is a the cap is also a function of the borrower's 2019 EBITDA. Uh, there's a four times cap under that program. The priority loan facility is a little bit bigger, a little bit different. It has the same minimum $250,000 loan amount. And that facility can go up to $50 million or six times the borrower's EBITDA. All of the loans under the Main Street program can be secured or unsecured. But when you get into the priority facility and then the other, the third facility, the expanded facility, there are certain priority and collateral requirements that go along with those facilities. And so under the priority facility, those loans can be unsecured. But if a borrower has other secured debt at the time it gets that priority loan, then that loan has to be secured on a roughly equivalent basis to the borrower's other debt. There's a collateral coverage ratio calculation and some other ways that that's measured, but new loan, new loan facility loans can be secured or unsecured. There's just a requirement that they not be contractually subordinated, stepping up to the priority facility unsecured only if there's no other secured debt. And the expanded facility, the third facility, much larger program, minimum loan size is $10 million. You can go all the way up to $300 million. Uh, again, limited by a six times leverage multiple on the borrower's 2019 EBITDA. The expanded facility is essentially dropping a new loan into an existing credit facility. And so that those types of loans need to be secured essentially on a period-to-period basis with the debt under that existing facility, as well as with borrower's other debt if it has any other secured debt. All of these programs have the same pricing, LIBOR plus 300, and they all have the same general eligibility requirements for both borrowers and lenders. So we're looking at a program open to, on the lender side, essentially banking institutions, what folks traditionally think of as banking institutions. So federally insured depository institutions, U.S. chartered banks and savings and loans associations, those kinds of entities. Direct lenders are not able to participate in the program as lenders. Non-bank lenders not able to participate. On the borrower side, this program is again aimed at small to mid-sized businesses. What that means, according to the Fed, is that a borrower meets one or both of conditions measuring its size. So 15,000 or fewer employees or 5 billion or less in 2019 revenues. There are also other eligibility requirements built around type of business that a borrower is, and this is one of the places that the program borrows from some of the other government relief programs that essentially applies the same sorts of eligibility tests as applied to the Paycheck Protection Program. That's kind of a general overview of things. Uh, lender registration was opened last week. That's the first step in opening up this program. Lenders that are looking to participate register with the Boston Fed which is the branch of the Federal Reserve that's going to administer this program. There is a separate loan submission function that will open at some point, presumably in the near future. And that's the mechanism that these eligible lenders will use to submit their loans to the SPV for purchase of participations. 
That is a fantastic summary of a, and actually a very comprehensive summary. I think that the question of the day for anybody in connection with the Main Street Lending Program at this point is, do we have any idea when the program will actually go live? I feel like we've heard, we're recording this on June 22nd in the afternoon, and I I feel like we heard at the end of May it was going to be live at the end of May, and then in the first week of June it was going to be live in the first week of June. And is there any particular go-live date that you've heard of, or is it still just kind of speculation at this point? I think it's still a lot of speculation at this point. The last sort of very substantive update that the Fed gave towards the end of May, right around the Memorial Day holiday weekend, there was testimony by Chairman Powell, and he indicated that the, he expected the program to open in a matter of days, not weeks. And in some respects, they can say, I think, with a straight face that it has opened, at least in part, with the lender registration piece. They are still receiving comments from particular you know, borrowers or lenders who might be interested in the program. And you know, they, they've been generally pretty thoughtful in listening to feedback and incorporating that feedback. Some have criticized that because it's taken them as long as it has to operationalize this program. This program was first announced in early April, and it's gone through a couple of rounds of updates. The lender registration piece, again, has been open for about a week now. Haven't gotten really any indication from the Fed, and they have indicated previously that they wouldn't really be publishing this in terms of which lenders have registered to participate. I think it's important for lenders to understand that registering to participate doesn't obligate a lender to make a loan under this program, but to be able to make a loan under this program and have the Fed purchase a participation, a lender has to be registered. And so if there are lenders listening who are still kind of on the fence about, you know, whether they're going to make loans under this program, whether they're going to participate if there's any real possibility that they are going to participate, they should go ahead and register. Again, there's nothing binding them to make loans if they do register. But in terms of kind of opening up this second piece so that lenders can actually submit loans to the Fed for purchases of participations, I think that's still very much an open question. The Fed last week hosted a kind of drop-in Q&A session for lenders and some of the questions that came out of that indicated that there would be at least one more round of additional guidance issued by the Fed before they really kind of opened up the loan submission piece. There was an updated FAQ released on June 20th, so just over this past weekend, and it, it looks to have answered at least a couple of those questions that had come out, particularly around the mechanics of how the participation functions, what the timing is, you know, once a lender submits a loan to the Fed for review or submits a request for the Fed to you know, issue a commitment that it's going to purchase a participation and what the timing is after the lender actually funds it when it can expect the Fed to fund its participation. It also answers some questions about, you know, how these loans will be viewed for purposes of lenders' lending limits. So there was some feedback from the OCC and the FDIC about depending on which option a lender chose, whether it funded the loan first and then submitted to the Fed for a participation or whether it submitted to the Fed first and looked for a commitment, depending on which option the lender chooses there, how that loan gets considered in a lender's lending limit 
and variance. So there's probably a few more questions that lenders would like answers to. I don't know that the Fed is going to provide those answers before it opens up the program, but you know, not to not to repeat the Fed, but it does seem as if this program is really more in the neighborhood of days rather than weeks in opening. It may stretch out to, you know, seven to ten days, but I would expect the program to open probably in the next seven to ten days, or there will be some pretty substantial criticism from folks who have already expressed some criticism in the past about the slowness of the Fed in opening the program. Do you have any sense of what the demand on the borrower side for loans under the Main Street Lending Program? And I mean, anecdotally, and I kind of want to compare this to the the Paycheck Protection Program, where I feel like there were, it was almost as if every single person that wanted a Paycheck Protection Program loan was calling all hours of the day. And there certainly have been inquiries on the Main Street Lending Program, but I haven't seen in my own practice nearly the amount of interest on the borrower side. Not to say that there isn't significant interest, it just is smaller. Is that consistent with what you've seen? And do we expect the same sort of land rush that we we saw with respect to the Paycheck Protection Loans? Or should this be a more measured type of program as borrowers feel the need that they, or think that they might be eligible for this type of financing? Will it be a slower, more gradual rollout as the Main Street Lending Program starts to go live? Yeah, I think it's going to be quite a bit slower than the Paycheck Protection Program for a few reasons. First, with that program, that was a program administered entirely by the executive branch, and it was a program that had a congressionally limited pool of money to use. It's also just different kind of money here, that the Paycheck Protection Program were on their face loans, but they were forgivable loans. So if a borrower could express a need under that program and could you know, really use the funds in the way that were prescribed by the Act, there was no you know, real obligation for them to pay it off. There was an expectation that they would be able to get it forgiven. Contrast that with, with the Main Street Program, which as a Federal Reserve Program, they have some constraints that they have in administering and establishing this kind of program. First among those is that this is an emergency credit lending program under the Federal Reserve Act. The regulations that go along with that say that these loans cannot be forgiven. So it's not a question of using these you know, loan proceeds for certain forgivable purposes. It, this is a loan. It has a five-year maturity. You're expected to pay it back you know, at these times and these amounts. It's not the same sort of debt or same sort of money that that borrowers would be getting under this program that they might have gotten under the Paycheck Protection Program. It's also a program that the banks involved with this program are really exercising more of their lending and underwriting functions here. For the Paycheck Protection Program, that was essentially a pass-through program where the borrower checked the box, made the right designations in its application, the lender would submit that application and the money would get passed through that bank to that borrower. It's essentially, you know, check the box, get the money. That's not what the Main Street program is here. The Fed has expressed, I think, from very early on that it's going to be relying significantly on the banks here. Banks are expected to assess the creditworthiness of borrowers in a way that they weren't expected to do so under the Paycheck Protection Program. 
expected to go through their typical underwriting process, which is a much more involved process than sort of checking through an SBA checklist. And there may be borrowers under this program that satisfy all of the eligibility criteria that don't get loans or don't get the maximum amount of the loan that they could get under this program. It's all going to depend on what the lender's underwriting and what the lender's you know, appetite for making these kinds of loans is going to be. And the other piece that I think is going to stop this from being kind of the land rush we saw with PPP is that this is not a defined pool of money. The Fed has said from day one that you know, it expects to purchase participations up to $600 billion in this program, but that's not a number that's preordained by Congress or that once they hit that number, they need congressional approval to buy additional loans. The program is has a equity funding component from the Treasury. The Treasury still has plenty of dry powder under the CARES Act to put additional money into this program you know, so that the Fed can get to the kind of leverage levels that it's looking at here. You know, so that's, I think, on the, you know, more on the lender side about what might make this program roll out a little bit slower. In terms of borrower interest, I mean, a lot of this is, is anecdotal, but we, we've talked with a lot of you know, borrowers, private equity sponsors. Some of the constraints and, and covenants that a borrower has to abide by under this program don't make it particularly appealing, particularly for private equity-backed borrowers. There are limitations on compensation, limitations on distributions that apply for the term of the loan plus one year after. And so, you know, the private equity world just doesn't really operate well under those kinds of restrictions. The other piece is that this is a program geared towards companies that were doing relatively well before the pandemic hit. And the idea here is, you know, to kind of help those otherwise healthy businesses, you know, continue to be able to pay their liabilities, keep their workers employed, keep in business until things normalize. Well, the kinds of borrowers that were healthy before the pandemic are, you know, borrowers that were in a better position to get credit, perhaps on better terms than what might be available under this program. And Given the slowness of the program to roll out, you know, I think it's fair to say that probably a lot of borrowers have, you know, in that position have, you know, if they needed credit, have already gone out and are in the process of getting it or have already gotten it. And so, you know, there may be a smaller pool of folks that this program is right for and that would, you know, put the effort in to get funding under this program. Yeah, and it does seem like it will be as an underwritten loan, that's a process that's going to be more involved than the Paycheck Protection Program check-the-box application. And that was, I think we all saw that there were there were a number of borrowers that figured out that they could get the application process pretty simply and easily. And I think that contributed in some large part to the land rush aspects of the early days of the PPP program. Do you think, and again, this is going to be anecdotal, that there will be lender capacity to provide the desired Main Street Lending Program loans, or is that something that we should be looking out for going forward? Yeah, I I mean, so I think the the Fed and the regulators, the bank regulators have done some things, not necessarily tied to this program, but as part of sort of overall stimulus and relief responses that, you know, certainly make, at least in theory, more capacity available. Doing away effectively with reserve requirements at the end of May certainly frees up 
more credit to make available. The, the way in which this program was designed too is you know, to help make credit available. Lenders are gonna fully underwrite a loan, but they're only gonna hold 5% of that loan. So once the Fed purchases that 95% participation, you know, presumably the lender there will have you know, capacity that it might not have had to make other loans to other borrowers that had held the full loan under this program you know, that, that's, that's money that, that would be tied up with that borrower might not be available for that lender to make a different loan to a different borrower. So I think there are, in, in terms of technical capacity, probably, you know, things that, that point in a positive direction, whether there's, you know, sufficient lender interest, I think that kind of remains to be seen. And lenders we've talked to, again, anecdotally, you know, we've encouraged them early on as we have talking with borrowers that, you know, because this is an underwritten process, you know, as we wait for guidance to come out or as we wait to see how the market might evolve in response to this program, getting those discussions going, getting those underwriting processes going, you know, there's no real reason to wait for that additional guidance or market reaction before those processes get underway. And as part of that, you know, part of getting those processes going, Lenders and borrowers might find a different arrangement, you know, that wouldn't necessarily qualify as an eligible loan under this program, but that might work work better for them. You know, and I think we've we've seen at least some kinds of discussions around. You know, I wouldn't say that we have any sort of real clear market intelligence yet as to, you know, if lenders and borrowers are sort of veering off the path, having gotten on it earlier, and sort of veering off the uh, path of doing mainstream loans, but. I think we'll have, or we should have over the next couple of weeks, a better idea of sort of lender interest and borrower uptake of this program. So related to the market consensus, and again, contrasting with the PPP program, I mean, we pretty quickly saw a consensus within the market of what a PPP amendment looked like from either a lender that was providing a paycheck protection program loan or a lender that was not providing a paycheck protection loan, but was consenting to the incurrence of that debt by their borrower from a different lender. It sounds like that's something that we really probably shouldn't expect here, that there will be a much broader range of amendments and documentation relating to the Main Street loans. Is that a, a fair characterization, or do you think it's still too early in the process to tell? No, I think that's probably a fair characterization here. I mean, that there there may be, if you look at each of the three facilities kind of separately, there may be consensus that comes out around unsecured new facility loans, right? Those, those are pretty easy. Those could fit within, you know, if we're talking about a consent by an existing lender to a borrower getting a new loan facility loan, you know, we might see consensus develop around, you know, general consent to that kind of amendment because it, you know, it's, it, it's pretty simple. It's it would be unsecured debt. It'd be for a relatively low amount, probably relative to the borrower's other debt. I think once you get outside of the realm of the unsecured new loan facility loans, it gets a little more difficult to develop consensus. For the lenders that are actually making these loans, they're expected to use their own form loan documentation. That can vary wildly by institutions. Some institutions can use Laser Pro or other, you know, automated document type or, or sort of 
more strictly forms-based documentation processes, and you know, there's probably going to be a lot of consistency around that. Other lenders have their own internally developed forms that, you know, that they'll be expected to apply here with adjustments for the program. But I don't know that we're going to see consensus across lenders. There there's certainly should be consistency by each lender with the different Main Street loans that it might make in terms of documentation and process. But across lenders, you know, and particularly when you start talking about lender consents, each existing credit facility to which a borrower is a party is going to be different in some ways. They, you know, they're probably all going to have some type of negative covenant around incurring debt, some type of negative covenant around incurring additional liens, but the particular ways in which those covenants function and how they interact with Main Street loans, I think, is is going to be probably too much of variation there to be any sort of real market consensus. We may see consensus around the consent aspect of it, but in terms of you know how lenders get comfortable with the intercreditor arrangements, probably not a lot of consistency or consensus across the market for that. Yeah, that certainly will be something that will be interesting to keep an eye on. If, given the wide variety of credit facilities that are out in the world, it will be interesting to see what actually what the consents or amendments or the new document starts to look like. I want to switch gears to talk specifically about the impact that the Main Street Lending Program may have on direct lenders or non-bank lenders, and partly because the Main Street Lending Program is pretty explicit in that it doesn't currently allow direct lenders or non-bank lenders to access lenders. And we understand that that has been one of the earliest and most frequent comments to the Fed to allow more lenders to participate in the program, but that the Fed currently has not been receptive to that request. And in the PPP context, the program was ultimately opened up so that although it was initially basically bank lenders, that program was ultimately open to allow some kind of fintech lenders and other non-bank lenders into the program. And some of the more prominent of those include Square and PayPal. Do you think it's possible or is it pure speculation at this point whether or not direct lenders will be able to participate in the Main Street Lending Program as eligible lenders? I don't think, I mean, anything's possible. I don't think it's likely, at least not in the near term. So with the Paycheck Protection Program, again, different program in terms of the government agencies that were administering it. I mean, Treasury was involved in both, but the Paycheck Protection Program is, is really an SBA program. And the SBA does a lot of good work, but it's not involved in sort of direct interface with banks in the same way that the Federal Reserve is and the regulators that work with the Federal Reserve is. From very early days, as you mentioned, that the Fed has been focused on lenders that it knows and is familiar with, and that is bank lenders, you know, they, lenders that we traditionally think of as banking institutions. That's what they know. It's what they can measure. It's what the regulators they work with know and can measure. Very early on, there were comments and requests to expand the program, and the Fed has not shut that possibility off entirely. It has indicated in response to that kind of request and other requests to expand the program that it is, you know, it stands ready to evolve the program based on market needs and market response. One of the early 
comments it got was that, you know, that this program was initially not open to nonprofit organizations as borrowers. And the Fed indicated again early on that it was, you know, again, looking at ways to expand the program. And just last week, they published some term sheets that would provide facilities under this program for nonprofits. So they have shown some willingness to expand the program in certain ways. I think they're going to want to wait to see what sort of uptake they get from lenders, traditional banking institution lenders, to before they would expand it to direct lenders or other alternative lenders. The, you know, I think that the certainly those direct lenders have the capacity to do the underwriting required for this loan. It's what they do, but they are not regulated in the same way that banking institutions are and that the Fed is familiar with. One of the requirements of the Main Street Lending Program, at least for certain kinds of loans or certain kinds of borrowers under the program, is that they meet certain loan risk ratings, internal ratings that are mandated by the bank's regulators. And so that's a way for the Fed to ensure its mandate under these kinds of programs that it's not lending to insolvent entities, right? And so one of the ways it does that is through this internal risk rating, which really isn't an equivalent for, or at least not an obvious equivalent for, with non-bank lenders. The other interesting question we've seen from non-bank lenders on this too is, certainly the Fed has said, you can't participate as lenders just yet. You know, We might open it up later. We've gotten some questions from non-bank lenders that were wondering if they could participate as borrowers. And unfortunately, we had to tell them, you know, right now under the program, you can't. One of the some of the eligibility criteria imported from the CARES Act and the Paycheck Protection Program excludes certain kinds of businesses, including businesses whose job is to you know, do financing work, to make loans, and you know other things like that. And non-bank lenders have been shut out kind of on both sides of this. We'll see if the Fed expands it, you know, on either side of it, but I wouldn't expect that anytime soon. Yeah, their non-bank lenders as borrowers is kind of an interesting twist to the program that except for the fact that they, they're not allowed to because of the regulatory guidance. That would have been an interesting use of the proceeds. And I do think that I think most direct lenders, if you ask them if they wanted to be regulated by the Fed or if they wanted to provide the Main Street Lending Program loans, I think they probably would opt not to be regulated and to just not provide them, given that I think most of them think that they have some sort of advantage because they're not regulated financial institutions. I do wonder, does... The Main Street Lending Program creates some risk to direct lenders. And in that sense, is there a possibility that we could see refinancing of existing direct lender loans under the Main Street Priority Loan Facility or otherwise see banks try to claw back market share that was previously held by direct lenders over the I mean, especially given the proliferance of you know, non-bank lenders over the last it really, so I'd say the last 10 years or so, could this be a moment that we look back in the future as the tide turning from direct lenders back to traditional bank lenders in a number of markets? I think there's certainly a possibility for that. I don't know at this point what sort of scale that might look at. We were looking back on it in a few years, but I think there's certainly an opportunity here, opportunity for banks, a risk for non-bank lenders here for that to happen. First of all, with the priority loan facility and the expanded loan facility, you know, there is risk to 
not only direct lenders, but to, you know, to bank lenders as well, but existing lenders to borrowers that apply for loans into this program are certainly at risk for having their collateral positions diluted. The priority and collateral requirements for the priority loan facility and the expanded loan facility really make it such that, you know, this debt that's coming in essentially is the first debt that gets repaid. And this debt has to be on at least equal footing with a borrower's other secured debt. And so what that comes down to is, you know, you have more debt being put onto these borrowers secured by you're either diluting an existing collateral position or a borrower is diverting collateral to a different loan. So there is, you know, you either have competing claims to that collateral or you lose a claim to that collateral. You know, if a borrower has existing debt with a direct lender, certainly direct lender is going to have to be involved in providing a, a consent to that borrower and direct lenders have an opportunity to you know, condition that consent however they please and however it can clear the market with their borrower. You know, I think the other risk we see here is that direct lenders by and large have been able to secure pricing that is more favorable to lenders than the pricing that is mandated by this program. LIBOR plus 3% is, you know, it's nothing to sneeze at, but it's not the same sort of yields that we've seen direct lenders get over the past few years. And so there certainly is a possibility that, you know, borrowers might look at this program, the priority loan facility, which is the only of the three facilities that allows for loan proceeds to be used to refinance other existing debt. Certainly borrowers could look at the priority loan facility as a way to recapitalize their debt structure in a way that's more favorable to them. And that could put some direct lenders at risk of being refinanced out earlier than they had anticipated or would want to be. And they're going to have to take that into consideration if you know borrowers are coming to them asking for consent. If that borrower qualifies under the priority loan facility, then you know that there's certainly a risk that if the direct lender isn't providing consent, that it could get refinanced out or that it could get refinanced out if the borrower doesn't want to seek that consent in the first place. Yeah, and we would probably see. I mean, we may end up seeing downward pressure on rates in the direct lender space as a result of that. That, that will be really interesting to see how that shapes up. And it really could be used opportunistically by some borrowers to decrease their total cost of funds. It will be interesting to see what that looks like in practice. Even if the Main Street Lending Program loans are not used to refinance, do you think that there's a possibility that we could end up having some real funky required lender issues, particularly in the expanded loan facility, if the direct lender is the agent, but then you end up with a potentially a very large chunk of expanded loan facility loans that are made to either a single bank or a bank group within the broader credit facility? Yeah, I mean, the expanded loan facility, I think, is where we've gotten a lot of lender questions, both from, you know, lenders that might look to be participating as eligible lenders, as well as existing lenders who are going to have to deal with these requests for consent. So, again, with the expanded loan facility, you're dropping a new loan into an existing credit facility. You've got, you know, a lot of the facilities of the size that this program would be introduced to are going to be syndicated facilities. They're going to be, you know, 
multi-lender facilities, probably multi, there may be revolving and turbine tranches already in that facility. And there may be, you know, existing waterfall provisions that aren't going to square with the program requirements. And certainly before a expanded loan facility loan can get dropped into a facility like that, there's going to have to be discussions among the lenders and the agent in that facility as to kind of how this new piece of debt that's coming in gets treated relative to the other debt and how it's, you know, how the collateral gets allocated. There are priority and collateral requirements around this program that are going to put lenders that thought themselves to be in a sort of first secured position to something that, that isn't quite that, even if they're still in the same facility. And, you know, I think that if a direct lender, non-bank lender is an agent under that kind of facility, it's the entity that's going to have to wrangle those cats and, and get, you know, kind of get some sort of lender consensus within that facility to allow for that Main Street loan to come in. Again, that just so, you know, for the benefit of lenders that are looking into this program, for the expanded loan facility, the lender that provides that new loan has to be an eligible lender and it has to own a piece of the underlying credit facility that this new loan is getting at. You can have a mix of lenders in a multi-lender facility, but that eligible lender has to own a piece of both the underlying debt as well as the, the new loan that's coming in under this program. And if you have you know, a group of different lenders who have different holdings and the eligible lender you know, is looking at this program potentially as a way to expand its influence within an existing credit facility, that's certainly an issue that you know, any agent is going to have to deal with. But for a non-bank lender, direct lender as an agent in one of these facilities, it's got the additional complication of, you know, that direct lender not being able to participate in the in the upsides, but you know, holding the presumably holding the the lien that secures all of the other debt and having to work with other lenders in that facility to get them on board with how this how this loan comes in. And so we've seen, we've heard some about some early discussions around, you know, having these kinds of amendments come in and, you know, within the first couple hours of hearing about that, all of these kinds of questions started to come up. And there was, I think, a sense of, if not being overwhelmed, at least being, you know, frustrated with the way in which that kind of dynamic would have to work for this program. And so, you know, I don't know in particular what the uptake is going to be like on the expanded facility. I think that there is, you know, certainly Certainly, the biggest facility. Certainly, you know, for lenders that have or for borrowers that have the, you know, wherewithal and revenues to support that kind of loan, it, it can be enticing to them. But usually, for borrowers of that size and for facilities of the size that these kinds of loans would be added to, there's a whole mess of you know interlender dynamics that you probably won't see as much of, if at all, with the other two smaller facilities. Yeah, the interlender dynamic is going to be a, a tough knot to untangle, and it will actually—I mean—it'll be fascinating to see how this program works in practice. I think the experience that everybody had with the Paycheck Protection Program was 
obviously, I think a lot of people scrambling very fast to try to figure out how the program would work. And the Main Street Lending Program has has rolled out slower, so it does seem that there have been more conversations up front. But even with a slower rollout and more time to think through the issues, there will definitely be issues that we can't foresee right now that will come up, and we will spend lots of time talking about them with lots of direct lenders, bank lenders, anybody involved in the program. Clayton, before we leave, any last words of wisdom that you would have to impart with respect to the Main Street Lending Program? Any genius insight that you would like to impart on our listeners? I don't know if it's genius insight, but I, you know, I, I think what we've been telling lenders and borrowers since this program was first announced, I think the, the advice still holds true, is that the Fed has said from the beginning that it expects this program to help out not only through the direct effect of making this credit available, but for also helping to, to loosen markets. It's talked a lot about the announcement effect of this. And you know, I think we've seen at least some of that bear out. What we've been telling folks from the beginning is, you know, if you're a company, if you're a borrower that's struggling, or if you're a lender that has a borrower that's struggling right now, but that was, you know, generally doing all right, talk to each other about what sort of credit might be available. You can use this program as kind of a foot in the door for that discussion, but that doesn't mean that you necessarily have to conform the extension of credit that might work best for you into something that fits within this program. Lenders going to have to go through the same process, whether it makes a loan under this program or makes a loan outside of this program. You can have those discussions now, maybe find something that works for you. And if, if it fits within this program, you know, that's a benefit to the lender. But if you're an otherwise healthy borrower, if you have an otherwise healthy borrower involved, in those kinds of discussions, there may be ways for that, you know, for that borrower and that lender to find something that works for them and to kind of help that borrower get through the pandemic and you know, until things normalize a bit. And this program might be the pretext for that. This program might be the answer for that, but you won't really know until you start having those discussions. Yeah, that's great insight. I think at this point, everybody's looking for more arrows in their quiver to try to deal with any sort of liquidity or financing needs. And if the Main Street Lending Program is the answer, that's wonderful. And if it's a way to get started or get those discussions started, that's a great answer as well. Well, Clayton, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for joining us today and for your insight on the Main Street Lending Program. I think it will be really fascinating for everybody involved to see how the program evolves and what it looks like in a month or two months from now, because it does seem like these programs do evolve pretty significantly once they actually go live. So we'll see if that is consistent here. We thank you for your time and thanks for joining us. All right. Thanks, Brian. Thank you. We appreciate you joining us on this episode of Yield Maintenance. If you have a question you would like to ask us or a topic you would like to have covered on a future podcast, please visit our website at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. 
This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action. 